It's an amazing thing to think that we get to do this. Every time I come into this room and experience this, I'm so grateful for that worship team. And I, I think you met their new director, Danny Stevens, their new worship director. But every time, you know, the tradition of being able to come together as the church has done for 2,000 years and realize that, that worship is not something that we just do in this room, but when we do it together, when we do it as the body of Christ, the people of God together, it's different, it's unique. It matters in a different way than just when I worship by myself because there's a part of God as we've taught here at this church for a long time, there's a part of God that I can't know without you. I can't experience him fully without being together with one another. So we're grateful you're here. As Pastor Matt said earlier, we, we bring the church into these rooms for that purpose and we're thankful you're here. We've been in this series, as you know, in the Beatitudes. We've been looking at the, the kind of life that Jesus says if we live according to these certain things and apply these certain things in our life, that we will be blessed. I mean, and unabashedly, unashamedly says we'll actually be happy. It's a way for us to be happy if we live according to these things. And I've loved this series, this, the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, some writers have said that the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gathered with hundreds, maybe thousands of people, we don't know for sure, but in a place where acoustically it worked for them all to hear him, and he preached this amazing sermon to them. It's often referred to, and I love this, as the constitution of the gospel. The constitution of the kingdom itself is found in that Sermon on the Mount. And if that's true, then the Beatitudes are the preamble to that constitution. Again, the things that we find these things to be true because Jesus says they're true. He says they're the way we're to be blessed if we follow these things, if we pay attention to these parts of our life. And the Bible says to us that it's more than we understand in an initial hearing. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Your heart has not yet fully imagined what he has in store for you. That's a pretty great promise to make, right? That it's good that he intends for you and these beatitudes show us a way to get there. And this is the, the seventh and sort of the eighth uh, beatitude, depending on how you wanna count them. But most people group these, this, these two verses together that I'm gonna talk to you about today. I do have to tell you that I would have picked other, another beatitude if I had been picking to preach to you about because the one today is on persecution. It's hard to cultivate persecution in another person. It's easy to inflict persecution on another person, which some of you are thinking I'm going through that right in this moment, but it's hard to encourage you. I mean, if, if my topic was merciful, you know, blessed are the merciful, well, I could exhort you to be merciful. I could talk to you about, here's what it looks like, or, uh, or pure in heart, or peacemakers. You know, it'd be great for me to be able to talk to you about being a peacemaker, but persecution, 
is a trickier one to know how do we put this into our life? How, do we, how does this in fact bless us? How does it make us happy to be persecuted? Well, I think there's a couple of ways to understand it. I've been pondering this now for a week or so, and, and part of it is I've, I've needed to get my own head around what it means, not just for the persecution, but for the rest of that sentence that Jesus gives to us in Matthew 5. Let me read these verses with you. You'll find them in your own Bible, uh, and we always want you to read them so that you know we're not making it up. But um, it's found there as well as you'll see it on the screen, and it's in your worship guide as well. But this is the capstone, the, the last beatitude that Jesus is taking the, this crowd through, taking this crowd through before he launches into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And all week as I meditated on those verses, the part of it that continued to come back to me is the reward part. Because wouldn't you much rather think about the reward than the persecution? Jean-Luc Goddard said that every great story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, though not necessarily in that order. And today, I'm going to take the, this a little bit out of sequence to talk to you about it. Because in this statement that Jesus makes and the verse that follows it, there is an epilogue, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a prologue. Blessed are those who are persecuted, and there's a middle for righteousness' sake. And so I'd like to start with you with the epilogue itself of what it means to know that there is a kingdom of heaven and there is a reward in that heaven. And I'd love for you to be convinced that the very reward that is spoken of quite simply is Jesus himself. Jesus is the reward. Now, if you know and love Jesus, you get that immediately. If you're new to all this and you're thinking, I don't know, I don't know if that's enough for me because I'm not sure I know Jesus. And that's a legitimate response if that's where you are. And so let me consider it with you a little bit different way here. Over the past couple of weeks, I, it's been a harder season here at Northland. We have lost some people that we, many of us, love very much, people who have been with us for some time. And some of you have lost personally that we don't even know about. And, but for me, in the loss of a friend here, I've had to go back and try to remember what it is that I believe about heaven. And so I went back and reread Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. If you've never read that book, It'll encourage you. Randy Alcorn is a pastor, wrote a book called Heaven. I went back and I reread Peter Kreft, K-R-E-E-F-T, his book, again, called Heaven. I went back and I read John Eldridge's book on making all things new. In those books, there's some great content about things that we know 
from the Bible to be true of heaven. Different than the things that we make up about heaven. It's, it's common for us to just want to imagine the way we want it to be. You know, in heaven, we're not angels floating on clouds, playing on harps. You know, that's not the deal. Uh, you know, in heaven, it'll be different than that. I can remember as being a young boy and sitting in church and hearing a preacher say one day, you know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be like this all the time. And I've sat there and like, mm. I don't know if I want it to be like this all the time. You know, I don't even know if I want it to be like this for the next 30 minutes, you know, really. And some of you are thinking that for real right now, aren't you? But it won't be like this there. It'll be wildly different there, wildly different. And again, I, I'd love to just talk, it's my favorite subject. I'd love to talk to you about that the rest of our time. But here's the deal. When Jesus attached that reward to that statement, it had to be a game changer for all those people, something that they never would have considered otherwise. Because the other place that it's attached is in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit and the persecuted they're given the promise of the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's not just a little house on a street somewhere in the universe. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's, he doesn't say you'll get a piece of the kingdom or the part of the kingdom. He says you will get the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, that's a pretty amazing thing to think about, especially when you take all of these beatitudes and put them in context with one another and realize that Jesus is flipping the paradigm of how the world works, how they thought, how we think the world works. He flips it all. Instead of trying to win favor with the religious, the political, and the moneyed uh, elites, Jesus blesses the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, the grieving, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, and yes, the persecuted. It's a world inverting paradigm that Jesus is proposing to them as the reality of the kingdom itself. And it's a message that still applies today. And we need to hear it over and over. I need to hear it over and over because I always gravitate back toward those other things. And so the very thought of a reward is one of the things, in, again, in growing up, I, my family was not big on rewards. It was not, uh, you know, hey, clean your room. And if you do, then you get extra French fries. It wasn't, it wasn't an if you do thing. It was just clean your room. You know, and why should, because I told you to clean your room. That's just kind of how it was. I hope you had a gentler childhood than that, but uh, mine was not hard, don't get me wrong. I wasn't persecuted or anything, but, but it was just, there weren't rewards associated with everything, you know? And even, in, even growing up in the generation I grew up in, you know, it wasn't a thing, you just did the right thing. You just were said, here's the right thing to do, you do it. Why should I do it? Because it's the right thing to do. And, that, and that's not enough anymore, and I get that. It's really not enough for me anymore. I've totally adopted the millennial perspective on that, you know? And, I want to know what's in it for me now. 
You know, because I want, if I get a reward, I want it, and I want it now. I want my reward right now. You know, I got apps on my phone that make sure I get my rewards immediately for whatever I need to do in that moment. If it doesn't happen immediately, then don't even bother. I'm deleting you from my phone. I'll, you know, I mean, that's just how it works. And Jesus is saying, he almost makes it sound like it's immediate, right? You know, blessed are the persecutor, persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is present tense when he says it. And so those people, think about those people in the first century looking around at their life, living under an oppressive regime, living under religious persecution, poor, looking for a savior. And Jesus is saying to them, you've already got it. You got it right now. If you're persecuted, you have it right now. So clearly, it's a different thing than they thought it was and that we think it is. And so what does reward look like in your own life? How do you know you have been rewarded? Well, there's a couple of ways that, that the Bible tells us that we can see this and, and know the reality of it for, in our own lives. You know, those authors that I mentioned to you, they tell us the truth of what, of, of what heaven is like. And the fact that in heaven there is no time, and again, I'm spending more time on this than I should, but I like it. And uh, I like this subject, and, and, but time changes and perspective changes as a result of heaven. And reward itself, I went through scripture and I'm not going to try to impress you and tell you I spent a whole lot of time studying this, but I have a Bible uh, a computer on my Bible program on my computer that'll that'll just count the number of times reward is used or any other word is used in the Bible, and it's it's staggering how much God Jesus talks about reward. Everything He tells us to do, everything He tells us that we should respond with, has a reward associated with it. And you can do your own study and, see, and find, see if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure I'm right. I've got it all right here on my iPad in front of me. I could read the verses to you. There's, there's dozens and dozens of them where the reward is promised to us. In fact, le leading so much to the point that C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, great book, says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. The reward He has for us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and the heart of man has not even imagined how great this reward is. The guy that C.S. Lewis said was his master in his thought life, in his theological understanding, was a guy named George MacDonald, a Scottish mystic poet, author, and preacher. And, and MacDonald wrote this book called uh, Diary of an Old Soul. It's really just a collection of random thoughts that he had. I'm a random thought kind of guy myself, so I, I love this book. But in this book, in, in Diary of an Old Soul, McDonald says it, he, he imagines what that must be like, the reward that comes from being with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, and what that would result in, how it would look 
in life. And he says, and in that perfect time, oh, perfect God, when we are in our natal home, when joy shall carry every sacred load and from its peace, no heart shall roam. And in that perfect time and perfect place, I will see you face to face. And the mysteries of life that haunt us here, in your light, they will be clear. For what if thou were to make us there to make like thee? to light with moons and clothe with greenery, to hang gold sunsets or a purple sea. What if we make there like thou hast made me? A vision of a homeland is written on my soul. It's a hope that springs eternal. It's a dream that makes me whole. To be like my Creator and join in His delight spinning moons and galaxies, shattering the night. What if it's like that? What if we create like that? What if we exist like that? That's the picture of heaven that the Bible really does give us when Jesus says, I'm making everything new. What keeps us from seeing that kind of unblushing promise of reward? Well, this is what keeps us from it that we want it right now and we want it to be all about me. I mean, I know even you want it to be all about me. At least that's the picture in my head sometimes, that if everybody just wants it to be about me, we miss it because we who have, Jesus one day said it this way, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he goes on to describe the fact that we all just kind of look out for ourselves because we've made this kingdom all about me. And if we do that, then again, we miss the bigger picture of what God has for us. So if you have ears to hear, what do you hear? Well, do, have you been tracking this thing? It's kind of been an internet sensation. It started about a month ago, but it's still going on where you hear this certain word said, and some people hear one word and other people hear another word. You know, some of you are shaking your head, you know what I mean. You know, well, I, you know, I've had so much fun with this because almost any group you're in, it's different. And so I want you to listen to this now, right now, just for a second, and then I'll ask you a question about it. I want you to think about what word do you hear right now? Laurel. 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 Okay. How many of you heard the word Laurel? All right. You're the smart people in the room. Okay. <laughs> How many of you heard the word Yanny? You're the beautiful people in the room. So how does that work that we heard the same word and we hear different things? Well, it, you know, you can Google this and New York Times did quite an extensive study of it. And it all has to do with audio frequency and sonics and, and sound waves and that sort of thing. You know, and, and many of us just when that word was sounded, you just heard your own name. Uh, you know, because we can be that way too. But it is a thing that we can hear the same thing. I mean, we can hear the same expression of something, but what ends up happening in our brain is a different thing altogether. 
That's because we're looking for immediate gratification. I want to know, and I want to know now, and I want it to be about me. I want it to be what I think it is. And so it's a tricky thing when it comes to things as deep as the gospel itself, or even these teachings that Jesus was doing, because again, he taught on multiple layers all at the same time. So that the person it was, for the first, if it was the first time they had heard it, they got something amazing from it. Or if it was the 20th time they had heard it, they got something even more amazing from it because Jesus had that capacity. We, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can hear in the same way if we are attuned in and tuned together to the Holy Spirit. And so we're promised this great reward that one day, one day, we will be together in that kingdom and you know, Matt talking about that uh, being in one room, 49 people, and, and being in unity. Uh, imagine that in heaven with millions upon millions of unified hearts and souls together with one focus, one purpose, and great joy. That's the reward we've been promised. And so that's the epilogue. Be great, just do the benediction right now, uh, you know, and say, okay, so we got that. But like every great story and every truth, there is a, there's a prologue to this and there's a middle to it. I'm gonna be much shorter on this part, but just in the prologue of this, blessed are those who are persecuted. So persecution is the byproduct of conflicting kingdoms. This can be true in an, on a national level. It can be true in a community. It can be true in a homeowner's association. Uh, it can be true in a personal uh, perspective that just, you know, a lane on I-4 that you think is your personal kingdom, you know, and someone begins to uh, conflict with your personal kingdom and takes your lane the nerve, you know, that is persecution, right? You know, or you're, you want your latte a certain way. You want cashew milk and not almond milk, you know, and some of you are shaking your head. Yeah, now it's starting to resonate with you, you know, and they serve you half and half instead. And you're thinking, man, this is persecution. You know, this is a conflicting of kingdoms here and it just can't be. It just have to, I have to speak up against this injustice of the conflicting kingdoms. Well, the people of that day, lived in the midst of a significant conflicting of kingdoms. Again, the regime that I described earlier, they lived in the midst of this empire that they didn't want to be a part of, but they had no choice. For us, there are parts of our culture, parts of our world that you may not be pleased with, happy with, but it's where we are and it's what we deal with. And our kingdom uh, is not of this world. Neither was Jesus's. And yet we deal with a world where the kingdom is here. We pray that every time we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. What's that mean? It means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that we are to pursue that here and now, even in the midst if we feel persecuted. And there are things I realize that each of you go through that really are persecution. 
places where you're misunderstood or you're misrepresented or where people lie to you, people abuse you. You know, we have a significant problem in our own community here and in the communities that are represented all around the world where this kind of thing, this kind of injustice goes on. And we're told in the Bible that this will always be the case. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's something that you cannot get past. In John 15, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. So the first thing we need to know is that persecution is very real. It's the byproduct of conflicting kingdoms, and it's predictable. It's something that you can predict is going to happen. You have to just expect it. We should not expect to live in a world that does not have persecution. As long as we're in this world, you will have trouble. Ajith Fernando, brilliant man from Sri Lanka, he's preached here at Northland. And when he did, he, I remember as clear as a bell the, the sermon he preached when he was with us. He was the director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka before Adrian DeVisser, who's our current partner, uh, was the director. Ajith is a brilliant theologian, and, and the, the weekend that he was with us, and he unpacked uh, some of the things that have gone on in his own home uh, land of Sri Lanka, and there he said that, you know, they were under, they've been under a number of oppressive other uh, countries, other countries that uh, they were a part of their uh, kingdoms, literally. And the last one that ruled over Sri Lanka was the British Empire. They were a part of the British Empire. In 1949, they became, they began a path toward independence from the British Empire. And so they kind of cooperated, Ajith said, with the British Empire, which meant that they had a seat at the table. You know, they were, even as Christians, they had a seat at the table because the British were sympathetic uh, because of the Anglican church. They were sympathetic to the Christianity that had flourished in Sri Lanka. And so they, for, from 1949 to 1972, when they became an independent nation, they uh, were not persecuted in any way. But the other thing Ajith said happened during that season is that they had not one single recorded conversion to Christianity throughout that time. You can look it up. That they knew of anyway. And then in 1972, when they became an independent nation, a radical Hindu-led uh, government took over uh, that country and there was massive persecution that went on at that point. Christians were publicly executed. Churches were burned down. And guess what happened? The church flourished. It quadrupled in the first four years after that in size. Even though it was illegal for them to gather together, the church flourished and grew, and people were publicly confessing their faith. You hear about this happening in other parts of the world even now where the church is illegal. It's, it's happening anywhere there is persecution. I saw this with my own eyes in 1994 um, 
I was, a, I was a pastor here at Northland, but Youth for Christ that I used to work for, uh, my former boss there asked me and a guy named Bill Letourneau to go to Vietnam. It was before the United States had opened up relations with Vietnam and ask us to go there and meet with, a, with some pastors that were trying to start a Youth for Christ ministry there in Vietnam. And, and uh, we couldn't get a visa to get into Vietnam from the United States, but Northland had, had still does, have a license uh, uh, to go in and out of Cuba. And so Bill and I went to Havana to, and got a visa to get into Vietnam and uh, made the trip and got into Vietnam. The first thing, just an aside that struck me, so this is 1994, it's 19 years after the withdrawal of the American forces from Vietnam. It's a very moving thing for me to go to Vietnam. I got my own stories there, but it was very incredible to go to Vietnam and, and 19 years after that withdrawal. And what struck me first was when, you, when we flew into what used to be Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, lining the runways were, de were deteriorating, rusting American uh, vehicles of all kinds, you know, deuce and a half and, and, and even uh, uh, mortar carriers and, and artillery and other things that were just rusting away. And they had never even bothered to move them away from the airport. It struck me first, and I was just taken by that, but then I began to meet the pastors that we had to meet somewhat secretly. And every single pastor, by the time we had spent our time there, we probably met and, and, were, and, uh, and started this, this Youth for Christ program with about 50 pastors, men and women who were pastoring churches illegally uh, to the government, but every single one of them had spent considerable time in prison. Many of them had been beaten almost to death. Some of them had grotesque bodily things that will never change. And I'll tell you, for Bill and myself, it was the most humbling experience of my life to sit with those men and women. And here we are, the experts from America. You know, to tell them, here's how you grow the church. It was inverted. They taught us. They taught us a lot. It changed me because I saw, and in fact, one day witnessed persecution, physical persecution firsthand. And we had to just watch. We couldn't even intervene but for a lot of reasons. You know, and it's, it's uh, one of those things that, again, you think about that and you realize it goes on around the world right now. Where this comes from is a place, it's not new with us, it's not new with our generation. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. In fact, one of the most poignant stories in the book of Acts is Stephen, the apostle Stephen who Stephen is, is a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek who is, a, who is Jewish. He's been highly educated and trained by Gamaliel, the same person who trained Paul, uh, who was Paul's teacher. And Stephen, and I can't, we won't tell, I won't go into the whole story, it's all recorded in Acts chapter seven. The longest discourse in all of Acts is by Stephen. And he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the religious leaders of that culture of that day. 
And Stephen starts out a little bit gentle, but then quickly begins reviewing the history of what's happened in the Jewish faith. And he gets very real, very fast with them around verse 51, where he starts talking about how they have treated people who came to speak truth. And he says, you stiff-necked people, you are just like your fathers. You resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Now you've betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels have not obeyed it. That tends to not endear you to a crowd, I've learned, when you say those kind of things. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Uh, it's not funny. I'm just picturing the physical aspect of that. Of you know, some of you are thinking, I wish I knew how to gnash my teeth right now. But, you know, and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open. We just sang that. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saw the reward in that moment. They covered their ears. They were yelling at the top of their voices and they rushed him. And Luke, who's recording this for us, says they took him out and while a man named Saul, who would later be Paul, held their coats, they stoned him to death. And it's recorded in verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem that spread all through Judea and Samaria. But another thing began to break out on that day of Stephen's death. The church. The church began to break out. The church, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the witness of this martyr, this persecuted man, Stephen, changed everything. It changed Paul. It began, I believe, to work on Paul's heart. He didn't immediately get it, but he eventually got it. Because here's what persecution does. It purifies us. It is predictable, but it purifies us. Just the pure observation of it will begin to purify us. It'll purify us from the things that we think are so important, our own attitudes and our inadvertent persecution of others. When we see it happening, it should give us pause ourselves. And the first question should be, how do I do this? Because I probably do. Just in the way I treat people, persecution does happen in violent, and visible ways in difficult and dangerous places around the world, but it happens in small ways, in ways that we treat one another, in attitudes we form about certain kinds of people because they don't believe like we believe, or maybe 
they don't have the same color skin we do, or maybe they have a little different take on how God works in the world than we do. I'm not, not talking about crossing Christian lines. I'm talking about within Christianity. Does it not still amaze you that in our own country there was a period of time where white people read the same Bible on Sunday morning that black people read on Sunday morning? but the black people belong to the white people. Is that not amazing to us to consider that that's true of us? It's not just them. It's been true of us, and it goes on yet today in, in our country and in other places, that kind of persecution. But persecution will eventually purify us if we allow the Holy Spirit to work on us. It requires, though, our participation in that process of purification. And, and Peter wrote it in this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. Friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. But this requires a plan if we're going to do anything about persecution. We, it's not enough to just... No, it goes on out there somewhere. It requires a plan. That plan, I believe, starts with self-awareness, of being aware of the ways that we participate both personally, corporately, nationally, globally in persecution itself. I can't tell you what your heart says right now. You may think you're totally immune from this, but I'll tell you, think about it long enough and you'll think of some ways that you, are, you and I are both, and we are all involved in this. And it requires self-awareness. And any man in this room, happy Father's Day, uh, any man in this room can tell you self-awareness, not necessarily men's strongest suit always, self-awareness never happens within one's own self, though that's what a lot of us try. Self-awareness happens as a result of other people speaking into our lives saying, here's what I see in you. No, I don't see that at all, exactly. You know, you need other people speaking into your life to tell you, you know, and you have to invite that. You have to invite it by, by just letting them have that permission and then you being willing to respond to the ways that you involve yourself in persecution. And, and it starts with just the question, do you see this in me? Do you hear me speaking badly, bad attitudes, cynically? Do you hear me putting down groups of people? Do you hear me uh, speaking ill of people that I don't agree with? Do you hear me doing that? Because you know that as fun as that is, Jesus doesn't like it. He's real clear about it. He hates it. And you either need, and it's, and in fact, you know what he hates more than he hates a hardcore atheist? Is a lukewarm Christian. He said it, I didn't. Don't gnash your teeth at me. You know, he said, lukewarm, spit you out of my mouth. You know, that is, that's the stuff that we've got to first think about our own perspective on. Secondly is, is it requires an external awareness. Like what are some things that we can know together as the church, as the body of Christ, and know that we can do about 
the areas of persecution. The most significant persecution the church has ever experienced in 2,000 years is going on today. So how do we know that? We know it in a couple of ways. One, uh, right down here at, at Campus Crusade at Crew's headquarters, they have a, a wall of remembrance. The Jesus film has a wall of remembrance for those who gave their lives, delivering the gospel around the world. There's a ministry called Global Alliance for, the, for Church Multiplication that has seen 49 of their own staff martyred in the last 10 years for the sake of the gospel. Uh, lately, you've seen the news from Libya to Syria. We see this happen, happening in significant ways in Syria to India to in China. And we can also know the most significant persecution in the world today we know is in North Korea, the most, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian is in North Korea. I've learned a lot about this through a ministry that, that we support and I personally support called Open Doors that tracks this. And there's a great video. If you go to their website, opendoors.org, and I was going to play the video, but I'm not just for the sake of time, plus you know how to do this at home. Uh, you can go to their website and I would encourage you to, to watch the video, see how they figure out where these persecuted countries are. But among the top ones, you can imagine North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Egypt, and the list goes on and on. So I want to do something here with you today. We want to spend a moment just praying for the persecuted church. We can't just talk about this and then just walk out of here saying, okay, we know the church is persecuted, but we know they're getting a great reward someday. So we're good. Let's go to lunch. Um, Let's take a moment and think about this. this. This is the World Watch List for 2018. I know some of you don't know your geography and, and where each of those places are, but, but these, these are the places, and they're, you can't see it really well on our screen here, but uh, they're numbered as to the rank they have. You see North Korea over here on the right. That's number one. And you can see how they fall um, and, and where the greatest persecution lies. It doesn't mean that in the United States and Canada there's no persecution going on. It just is not the top 50. It doesn't mean that South America there's not. It's just not the top 50. These are the top 50. So I'm going to ask you to do this just personally and privately. Would you take a moment and just see where the Holy Spirit might lead you to pray and pray for one or two of these countries and the people, the churches that are in these countries. And would you just ask God to let the church rise up in a way that brings peace and hope and the reminder of the reward to these folks. Would you pray that personally right now? God, we've been calling this series Cultivate because we want to see 
these things that you've taught us in the Beatitudes cultivated in our own life. But we would be remiss if we thought it easy, if we thought it was a one-off kind of deal. But it's much simpler for us. It's easier for us than in a lot of the places that we see on this map. And so we pray for your church. Different ones of us are drawn to different places on that map. Because we may be from there, we may know people there. But you know everyone there. And so Lord Jesus, bring healing, bring hope, bring restoration, bring the Gospel. Change hearts of those in authority. Give us the courage to write to our own political leaders who are in authority and remind them of the most important thing that they could do with any influence they have in any of these countries. A real peace. The true peace that only comes from You. And a peace that would come to Your church in these dangerous places to be a Christian. Lord Jesus, You who gave Your own life for the church have set the bar for us. Let us be diligent in pursuing it and ultimately offer our cultivated praise back to You. Sing this with me if you know it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.